So I want to start this morning by telling you about someone that I want all of you to know about. His name is John Rogers. Um, If you don't know who he is, he was the first martyr during the reign of Queen Mary, who was the queen over England for a short time during the mid-16th century. Um, She was actually nicknamed Bloody Mary by John Fox. Um, That is Bloody Mary, like the urban legend. Um, That's This is where it comes from. Um, She was nicknamed that by John Fox in his famous Book of Martyrs because during her short reign, she was only queen for about five years, she had 288 people burned at the stake for holding to Protestant views and beliefs. Um, Even some children she had burned at the stake. Um, Before she took the throne, the English Reformation had been thriving under the rule of Edward VI, Uh, who was um, her Protestant half-brother, but when he passed away and she took the throne, um, she put a very quick halt to that because of her uh, firm and strong and clearly aggressive um, Catholic beliefs. Protestants went from being free and um, just really um, open in practicing their views and their beliefs to experiencing intense persecution literally overnight. Within her very first week as Queen of England in July uh, 1553, she had John Rogers arrested. And J.C. Ryle, in his book, uh, Five English Reformers, he talks about why Rogers was arrested. He said that Rogers was targeted and arrested before anyone else because, in a sense, he did more for the pro more for the cause of Protestantism than almost anyone else in England at the time. He actually helped William Tyndale translate the Bible into English, and he was an outspoken advocate for helping commoners, for helping everyone read and understand the Bible for themselves. At this point in time, only the clergy, um, at least from the Catholic view, were able to read the Bible and had the freedom to interpret it. Um, But John Rogers was an outspoken advocate for giving access of the Bible to everyone so that they could read and understand it for themselves. And he eventually would die for that belief. Um, So just a quick aside, friends, don't take your easy access to the Bible for granted. There was a long period in time where you would die, you'd be killed for reading it for yourself. But again, the reason I bring this up is because I want you to hear the account of John Rogers' life. J.C. Ryle in his book continues with this account of his execution. He says, on the morning of his martyrdom, Rogers was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church where he had preached and through the streets of the very parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside, listen to this, by the wayside stood his wife and 10 children, one a baby, whom Bishop Bonnet in his diabolical cruelty had flatly refused him leave to see in prison. So you heard that right. He actually had, he didn't just have 10 children, he had 11 children, just one couldn't come to witness this. And the one that Ryle mentioned was his baby. 
his wife was pregnant with when he was imprisoned. He spent a year in prison and was never allowed to see his family. So this moment when he sees his wife and children and that baby, this is the first time at his execution that he's getting to see his newest child. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that? He just saw them, but was hardly allowed to stop, and then walked calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that church leaders would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But, and this is, this is amazing to hear. This gives me chills just thinking about it. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly, this is right after he's just seen his family, who he knows he's leaving, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. It wasn't for his execution. It was for him, how he faced it. Even the French ambassador wrote home a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to death, and I quote, as if he was walking to his wedding. Wow. I share Roger's story with you for two reasons. First, notice the incredible fearlessness and boldness that he had when he faced his own death. It awes me to think about it. Just consider the French ambassador's words again. He spoke of Roger's walking to his stake where he's about to be burned alive as if he was walking to his wedding. Where does that kind of joy and perseverance come from? I don't know about you, but I want that kind of steadfastness in my faith. How can I be like that for Christ? We'll get to more of that later. But second, notice the crowd's reaction Again, their applause could not be controlled or contained. His strength stirred up a boldness and fearlessness in them too. If I were to go on reading from Ryle or Fox, um, I did, I I, I read quite a bit more accounts of other um, English reformers at this time who were persecuted and martyred. And it's amazing If you read those books, you would see how many men and women stood up for their faith and were martyred because of Rogers' example. His sacrifice empowered them to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel when they would have otherwise have kept silent. A number of people gave an account saying that because they got to witness his joy and perseverance in the face of death, they felt a boldness and assurance to be able to speak for the gospel themselves. And I want you to be thinking about that because that is exactly what we saw in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14 last week. Caleb preached on this passage, and I want you to turn there in your Bibles now. Um, That's on page 980 in the Black Pew Bibles. Um, 
but follow along with me as I read those verses that Caleb preached on last week. So listen to this and see the connections to what I was just talking about from the account of John Rogers. It says in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's in jail, he's imprisoned, and this is furthering the advance of the gospel. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So when you think about what Paul is saying there, Think about that account of Rogers. Think about how the persecution that Paul is experiencing in his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel, this is emboldening others to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see the similarities? Paul's imprisonment is emboldening the Roman Christians. And our passage this morning in in verses 15 through the first part of verse 18 looks more closely at that. And as I read it, which I'm about to do, I want you to pay attention to why the people are bolder and how Paul reacts to it. This this account that seems to be going in a good direction maybe kind of takes a turn. So I want you to pay attention to why that is and how Paul reacts to it. So follow along with me as I read verses 15 through most of verse 18. It says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. (laughs) Not what you hope to hear, right? We just heard Paul say, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So we see this is going in a really good direction. Yes, the Christians in Rome are bolder to be preaching the gospel, but notice their motives are very mixed. Some are doing it in solidarity with Paul, as you would hope would be the case. Others, though, are actually doing it to undermine him. They want to grow their own influence and authority in their church. They see the attention that Paul is getting, and they want some of it for themselves. They're trying to eclipse him. And remember, most disappointing of all is that these really are Christians. It's easy to look at this passage at first glance and to think that Paul is talking about like false teachers or something like that, but he's not. These are the brothers who Paul was talking about in verse 14. Again, he says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But then he's describing those most of the brothers fall into these two categories. Some of them are preaching the gospel out of goodwill, and some are preaching it out of envy and rivalry. 
These are brothers in Christ that he is talking about. Can you imagine that? Here, Paul is imprisoned and could be killed. We know that because he mentions that in the next passage, which we'll look at soon in a couple weeks. But So he could very well be killed right now. Um, and his fellow brothers, instead of caring for him, are taking advantage of his confinement to compete against him for followers and disciples. It's disturbing to think about. But even with that said, look at Paul's reaction. His reaction is remarkable to me. He doesn't do what I know I probably would do if I was in his position. After everything that he's already done for the Roman Christians, Note that he wrote this letter to the Philippians after he wrote his letter to the Romans. So that letter that he, like that incredible letter, arguably the greatest letter ever written that I can only imagine how long it took him to draft that and work on it, the heart that went into it, the prayers that he's prayed for for this church in Rome after everything that he has given to them church members are doing this. I would be a combination of both fury and despair right now if I was Paul, probably. I would want to quit and leave Rome. I wouldn't want to be there. Really, stop and think about how terrible you would feel if you were in his position. Giving everything that he has for them and to see this response from from some of his brothers and maybe even sisters in Christ. But no, that's not how he responds. His response is rejoicing. We can read verse 18 and gloss over that so easily, but this should get our attention. It is a remarkable response. Paul's rejoicing here is no less powerful than when John Rogers walked resolutely to his death as though he was walking to his wedding. Church, I want us to understand how to be joyful like Paul. Even in the face of betrayal and persecution, both his story, both the example of John Rogers, these are stories that give us a glimpse of indestructible joy that is not based upon our circumstances. I want us as a body and as a church to find and experience that too. So to help you, to help me, I need this too, to help all of us do that, I want us to consider two questions this morning. These are gonna be my two points. It's just answering and looking at these two questions. The first one is gonna be, why did Paul rejoice? Why is Paul rejoicing right here? In other words, how is he able to be joyful? I want us to see that, to recognize that. And then two, I wanna answer the question, how should we respond? And this is where that question isn't gonna be just answered in the sermon. This is where, this is your homework to continue thinking about that question even after we leave here this morning. How should we respond in light of Paul's ability to rejoice? How can we be like him? So those are gonna be my two questions this morning. My proposition, the ultimate answer to those questions is this, that humility to Christ and his mission enables us to rejoice at all times. 
That's the key. Humility to Christ and his mission. Humility to Christ and his mission enables us to rejoice at all times. That's what I hope we all take away from these, these verses this morning. And I hope you know what I mean by that by the end of this sermon. So let me begin by showing, showing you that by looking at our first question. Why did Paul rejoice? Again, in other words, I'm saying, how was he able to be joyful even in the midst of this being his circumstances? Look with me again at verse 18 because we get his most explicit answer in, that, in the, that verse. He says, what then? After he's just reflected on the fact that some people are preaching the gospel for good reasons, some are preaching it out of sin. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So see, the only explicit reason that Paul gives for his joy is that Christ is proclaimed. That's his reason. Because Christ is being proclaimed, whatever the reason, because it's happening, I will rejoice. I will be happy. But if you think about it, that's not really... I don't know if you feel the same way that I do, but I don't see that as like a great answer. I want more. I need to know more. Why is that enough? Why would that be enough to make him happy when so much else is wrong with this picture? That's where my mind goes when I see that answer. Again, he's under arrest. He could be imprisoned soon. Territorialism and selfish competition are significant areas of sin in this church that he is ministering to right now. So why is he rejoicing simply because Christ is being proclaimed? He clearly thinks there are things that outweigh those issues that I just mentioned. So what are they? To answer that question, I think we need to go beyond these verses to look at the rest of his letter and to reflect on his worldview in this passage. And the key is having the right perspective, which we see, again, if you read and look at the letter as a whole, Paul's got the right perspective regarding his, his situation. So often, when we think about our own circumstances, we, we zoom in too much and we only consider the, the difficult or bad aspects of them. But when we zoom out, when we consider how those difficult or challenging situations or scenarios actually play a part in a greater good, then we are able to rejoice better. I mean, I was, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this uh, yesterday, and I was thinking, take, take this example. Let's say you're really zoomed in. There's a scene. So imagine this. There's a scene in your head. You're looking at a situation, and all you see is a body laying unconscious on a table and a hand is coming down and has a sharp instrument of some kind and is cutting open this body. I know that's maybe, that should be gruesome if you think about that, just hearing that. It's like, okay, that's really disturbing. That's probably a scene from a horror movie. But... And so, like, if you only see that small bit of what's going on, if you just focus on the fact that this, cut, this body is being cut open, you're going to think this is a terrible circumstance. But zoom out. 
Let's, let's zoom out of the scene, and then all of a sudden, more stuff comes into focus. More stuff enters the picture. You see that the hand that's holding the sharp instrument is the hand of a doctor with scrubs on, and that the sharp instrument is actually a scalpel, and that you're in an operating room, and there's radiology reports and things all over the place that show you that what is probably happening is this person's organs are being repaired because damage has been done. Now consider the scene. What at first looked like a really bad thing is actually a very life-giving thing, something meant to be saving and healing and improving. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. Paul isn't just zoomed in on the specific details of what has happened. He, he has a perspective that's allowing him to see those things in light of the bigger picture. And that's because, and that because of that, he's able to rejoice. So yes, he is acknowledging the bad, he isn't being a Pollyanna, and he's not trying to sugarcoat what's happened. I mean, he's acknowledging these things are true. He's acknowledging that there's sin in people's motivation for why they're preaching the gospel. He's not trying to sugarcoat it. He's not ignoring it either. But he isn't seeing only the bad here. He's seeing how it fits into a bigger and better picture. When I look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, there's three significant truths that jump out at me that are relevant to this scenario. I'm sure you could come up with many more, but there's three that I specifically want to point out, and they form the lens through which he is viewing his current circumstances. There's the three reasons, at least three of the reasons, why the proclamation of Christ is more than enough for him to, to rejoice and to be joyful despite his circumstances. So I want us to consider those three things now. And I hope that these would help us to be able to rejoice as well, no matter what our circumstances are. So first, Paul rejoiced because he saw all of his life as service to Christ and his mission. Let me say that again. Paul rejoiced partly because he saw all of his life as service to Christ and his mission. And I'm going to read for these three reasons that I'm going to be looking at. I'm going to point out verses in this letter. We could point to many more in his other letters, too, that build up this, this worldview also. But I'm just going to use Philippians, too, to help you see that this is the way that Paul thought. So look at Philippians 1.1, the very, very beginning of this letter. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... Notice that Paul doesn't call himself an apostle here. He's not saying Paul and Timothy, apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ to establish his authority, an authority that he rightly has. No, he's not highlighting that. He's highlighting his servitude. He's highlighting his submission to Jesus Christ here. This humbled view of himself was foundational to the way that Paul approached his life. He held himself to the same expectation that he held the Philippians. If you look at verse, um, in chapter two, verse three, when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Notice there that he uses the same language that he used to describe the Roman Christians in, verse, in chapter one, verse 17. Do nothing from selfish ambition. He says the, he uses the same exact language or conceit, but in humility, instead, count others more significant than yourselves. 
He then goes on to describe the humility of Jesus Christ himself and his willingness to lose everything, even his very life, for the sake of his people. It's, it's so obvious in Paul's letter and in his ministry that he wants to embody that same humility that he saw in Christ that he's imitating and that he's calling the Philippians to as well. He says this in chapter two, verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul saw his life because he was a follower and servant of Christ, as meant to be fully and completely given over to Jesus and his, his people for the sake of his ministry. He was willing to be poured out as a drink offering for their sake. And look with me at Philippians 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Look at the affection that he has there that he expresses to the Philippians. He loves and longs for them. They are his joy and crown. I wish I had that humility and love for others like he does, especially as a shepherd of the church. His happiness is not dependent upon what he gets from them. He is glad in them. He's glad for them. Not the other way around. He measures the quality of his life based on how he is able to serve others, not his comfort level or the amount of wealth he has or what he receives from other people. As human beings, we are so prone to view everything geocentrically rather than heliocentrically. Now, I know those are astronomical terms, but they're useful to describe what I'm talking about. Think about it. We think everything revolves around us in our world. In other words, we are geocentric. So if, if things aren't going well for us specifically, then that means the situation must be bad. If our determination of how good or bad things are is based upon how we feel, then that's how we're going to view things. If our circumstances don't feel good, we're going to think they are fundamentally bad. And therefore, we will not be able to be joyful in them. Paul has a totally different point of view, though. By seeing himself as a servant to Christ, he's viewing his life heliocentrically. Think about it. Everything in his world revolved around the sun, not the physical sun, as in in the sky sun, but the sun, Jesus Christ. Keith, that pun is for you. Um, if something caused him suffering or pain, but it ultimately benefited Christ and his mission and the fulfillment of his gospel, then Paul saw the circumstances as fundamentally good despite how he might be feeling, despite what is being done to him. Because ultimately, the measure of the, the worth and quality of that circumstance is, is this good for Jesus? If it is, I don't care what's happening to me. I can rejoice as long as Jesus is served and exalted. 
That's why it doesn't bother him that others afflict him, as we see in Philippians 1, verses 15 through 18. It doesn't bother him him if people don't appreciate him like they should, or if he doesn't get the credit that he deserves. It doesn't matter to him if he is betrayed, even by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not because those things don't hurt on some level. They've got to. He's a human being who has feelings and has relationships. It's not as though those things don't hurt on some level. It's just that he knows to expect those things if he's going to be a servant and sacrificing himself for the sake of others. And again, his joy isn't determined by those things. A greater joy dictates, a greater desire, I mean, dictates his joy. He is happy as long as Christ is glorified and his gospel is spread. And since that's happening, he rejoices. So that's my first um, reason why I think Jesus, uh, Paul is rejoicing here. The second one is based upon the need that he sees. Secondly, Paul rejoiced because he knew that everyone's greatest need is Jesus Christ. He sums it up so well in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, do you see how he treasures in there? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Redeemer, there is no need that Christ does not ultimately meet. Everything else is lost compared to him, as Paul is saying here. There is no affliction that he cannot cure. There is no fear fear or doubt or weakness that he does not overcome. There is no pleasure that he does not surpass. There's no power that he does not possess. There's no goodness that he lacks. There is no shame or sin that his blood cannot wash away. Do you believe that? Paul did. That's why he can say this, and that's why he can rejoice. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13 say, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's able to be content in any circumstance. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret to Paul's contentment and joy was his recognition that he had everything that he truly needed in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. What is missing two pennies? Let's say you have a couple coins that go missing. 
What is it to you if you are missing those coins, if you have millions of dollars in your bank account? That's what Paul recognized was the case here. What's a bit of pain when he knows he has everything he needs in Jesus Christ? He has confidence, he has identity, he has forgiveness, he has freedom from shame, he has strength, he has a God who is over him and with him and watching out for him. He has the resurrection from the dead. He knows that he has eternal life. So even if he were to die, he will be raised with Jesus for eternity. He has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what is a little bit of pain in this life now? He can still rejoice knowing that. And that's true for everyone. That goes for Christians and non-Christians alike. We should all take that reality seriously. That can be ours as well. It is never not appropriate to point someone to Jesus Christ and his gospel because of what he provides, what he offers to us through his sacrifice. Apart from him, we have nothing. But with him, we have every blessing imaginable. Friend, if you are here and you already have a relationship with Christ, nurture that and rejoice in it. And friend, if you are here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, don't leave today without one. You need him more than the very air in your lungs right now. Only through him is forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life. So entrust your life to him. Acknowledge your sins to him and seek forgiveness and he will grant it to you. Paul's joy was most firmly rooted in this truth. His taproot, if you think of an oak tree, the taproot is the very first root that forms. It is the deepest one. It is the greatest anchor. It keeps the oak tree firm and standing even through the worst of storms. Paul's taproot was his confidence in Jesus, not in himself. When Christ is proclaimed and believed in, salvation is found. So as long as Christ was being proclaimed, Paul was pleased and he knew that people were being taken care of. Their greatest need was being offered to him, offered to them. And so he could rejoice in that. So again, that's my second reason for why he could rejoice. He's not focused on himself. He's focused on what do we all need, both the non-believers that are being preached to and even those who are doing the preaching out of sin. They still need to hear the gospel so they would be convicted by it. So their need compelled him to rejoice. Thirdly, I want to point out the work of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Paul rejoiced because he trusted the Holy Spirit could and would convert the lost despite the sins of those evangelizing to them. Think about it. Gospel proclamation is pointless if the Holy Spirit doesn't use it to bring the dead to life. We cannot believe without his converting work, his, his sanctifying and salvific work in our hearts. But he does do that. The Holy Spirit does do that work. 
And he does that through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul was confident in the Spirit's work. Notice what he says right after our verses. Um, he says this in Philippians 1, uh, verses 18, the, second, the last bit of 18 through verses 20. He says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So see that Paul is keenly aware of the Holy Spirit's work in his ministry to people. He's confident that the Holy Spirit will use their prayers to free him and to allow his ministry to continue. Paul also knew, though, that sin could not prevent God from accomplishing his will. And this is key because we still have to deal with the reality that the preaching, the evangelists are in sin, some of them, their motives are wrong for why they're doing it. So what should we think of that? Well, first of all, we shouldn't see his acknowledgement, his rejoicing as saying that that's okay. Because again, think back to Philippians 2 verse 4. He explicitly calls the, the Philippians to not, or verse 3, he calls them to not do things from selfish ambition. So he doesn't want them to preach the gospel this way. But he has reason to be able to rejoice despite the sinful motives for the preaching of the gospel. And that's because he knows that even our sin does not prevent God's work from being done in and through us. This is important because he rightly recognizes that even he himself is a sinner. Look at Philippians 3 verse 12. He says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. The point is this. If sinful motives or actions hindered the work of the Holy Spirit, prevented him from using us, then he would never accomplish anything. No work would be done. No one would be saved because we're all sinners. All of our actions are are stained by impure motives to one degree or another. Paul recognized that even in himself. He was not perfect. None of us are. But he trusted in the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Regardless, he knew that the Spirit works in and through us despite our sin. And so he could rejoice even if the gospel was preached from wrong motives because he knew that the Holy Spirit could and would still use that proclamation to change hearts and save the lost. I believe he even expected that gospel proclamation, like I mentioned before, to convict the hearts of those who were doing the affliction against him and doing the preaching out of selfish ambition. Who's to say that he wasn't expecting their own preaching to cause conviction in themselves so that they would stop that? That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. He uses our own ministry to others to change our hearts. And so I believe he was confident of that work of the Holy Spirit there. And so again, he was rejoicing for that reason. 
So to sum it up, why did Paul rejoice? How could John Rogers, going back to our initial story, how could he go to his death with joy? Both of them were able to do so because they were humble to Christ and his mission. Paul was able to write Philippians 1 verses 15 through 18 because his joy was not dependent upon his own circumstances, but rather on those of Christ. Their joy was rooted in Christ, not themselves. Was Jesus being honored? Was his gospel going out to the world? Was his spirit using the gospel proclamation, even if it was happening for sinful reasons, to draw people to himself? If so, what reason did Paul have to be upset? Yes, things might be difficult for him. Yes, there might be pain accompanying this. But his greatest desire is being fulfilled here. So he rejoiced. And we're able to do that too in our own lives and circumstances if we are humbled to Christ and his mission and devoted to him also. This is a profoundly Christ-centered view of life. And it's one that I hope that we can all pursue together. We're not gonna achieve this perfectly in this life, but it's something we all want to aspire and pursue together as a body. And that's why this passage begs one more question of us. How should we respond? Or in other words, how can we be like Paul? How can we pursue this too? I want us to be a church of people who can rejoice when we are betrayed or hurt by others as we see is happening to Paul here. Because guess what? Even your fellow church members will hurt you at times if that hasn't already happened. Can you rejoice even in that? Also, I want us to be a church of people who can face persecution without fear. Again, as we see is happening to Paul here. You're not going to be probably arrested and imprisoned and possibly killed for preaching the gospel here in Champaign-Urbana. You're not going to be burned at the stake like John Rogers was. But our persecution can take many other forms. You will be ridiculed for your faith if you share it with others. You will be persecuted when you're called a bigot or told you are on the wrong side of, the his- of history because you hold to biblical views of morality. You will be persecuted when you're called sexist or repressive for claiming that abortion is murder. You will be told you are narrow-minded or hateful because you claim Jesus is the only way to salvation. I've heard these things. I've been told these things. I'm sure some of you have too. And you will hear those things eventually if you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and the implications of it. So how can you rejoice even amidst hearing those things? I want you to be able to. I believe we're called to that. Paul's example is testimony of that reality. So how can we? How can we respond to this? How can we be like him? I hope you already have considered some of those things, maybe how you can pursue that for yourself as we've talked about the previous points. 
Hopefully you've been asking yourself, which of those three perspectives that we looked at you struggle to embrace, whether it's uh, a servant-heartedness before Christ, whether it's um, um, the other two, whether it's uh, looking at just trusting in the Holy Spirit or seeing people's need to hear the gospel. Um, I hope that you've reflected on those things and noticed ways that you struggle to embrace one or more of those realities and you have ideas on how you can work on that yourself. But if not, let me share just two thoughts on how we should respond to Paul's rejoicing so that we could have hearts of joy in the midst of our own hardship. And I'll let you know up front, they're probably gonna sound overly simplistic to you. I want you to challenge yourself to do these two things. I want us to challenge ourselves as a church, collectively, to hold one another accountable in these things. First, to proclaim Christ, and second, to rejoice. So what do I mean by those things? They come directly from this passage, but what do I mean by them? First, we've got to proclaim Christ. If that was Paul's source of joy, we've got to expect that it should be our source of joy as well. And here's the hang up. For many of us, we think that we have to be joyful first before we can go and proclaim the gospel to others. We feel like that joy needs to be there before we can do it. And so we don't do it until we have an energy and a passion and a a zeal and a joy to go and share the gospel to others. We wait for the joy to come first so that we might go and proclaim the gospel to others. But when we do that, we lose sight of the fact that our opportunities, the occasions in which we proclaim the gospel to others are oftentimes the one of the ways that the Lord grows our joy in him as well. A lot of the time that can actually be a source of joy for us, even as it was for Paul in this passage. It's easy to forget that. If it isn't a source of joy for you, that should be an indicator to you that you are valuing things wrongly. It might be worth asking yourself what it is that your joy is dependent upon if your ability to proclaim and share the gospel with others, Christians and non-Christians alike, if that doesn't produce joy in you. But again, reflect on that. Maybe think about where is your joy found? What is your joy dependent upon? But don't just stop in that analysis. Go, preach the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about what he has done for you and for them. Tell people about his wisdom and beauty and goodness and grace and holiness and humility and everything else that is glorious about our Savior and Lord. Tell people about it even when you are not joyful. And I think two things will happen. One is that you will see others be transformed as they get to know him better. The Holy Spirit will change their hearts. He will awaken the dead. He will sanctify the children of God. And as you witness that, you will rejoice. You will experience joy from that gospel proclamation leading to heart change in others. 
And second, you will see yourself being transformed by knowing him too. As you reflect on the gospel that you yourself are proclaiming to others, it will change you. The Holy Spirit will work in you just as he's working in others. I can't tell you how many times I've been convicted of sin and led to repentance and brought to joy by the very words that I'm preaching to other people. I'll say something to someone else and then later on I'll be reflecting on it and I'll think, wow, I'm a hypocrite. I need to take that to heart too. The Lord uses the words that I shared with someone else to help me rejoice in him. That will be the same for you. You will be sanctified. You will want to be more like Christ in his humility and love. And of course, again, you will experience joy in that. You will be reminded that you are a child of God because that's what you hopefully are telling others. If they trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, you'll be telling them and reminding yourself that your sins are paid for, that you are fully known and also perfectly loved at the same time, that your identity isn't wrapped up in the things that you do or your success, because that is true if we are united in Christ that you serve a greater purpose than just yourself. As you tell others these things, which I hope you will be, remind yourself of these things and be glad in them. As you proclaim Christ to yourself and others, you will find joy. So let's do that. Let's not wait for the joy to come first before we tell others about Jesus. So that's my first reflection, my first action I want us to seek after. The second one is, like I said before, rejoice. We've got to rejoice. Now, by that, I don't mean that we're supposed to brute force our way into being happy all the time, to just smile all the time, to be happy, be glad, just ignore all the pain and the heartache that we feel, just suppress it. That's not what I'm saying, so do not hear me saying that. I don't mean that we pretend nothing bad ever happens or anything like that. What I mean is we've got to fight to have the right perspective when we're so prone to only see the bad. That's what I mean. We need to fight to rejoice even when we don't feel like rejoicing. When things aren't going well for you, don't link your joy to yourself and how you're feeling in the moment. Make it dependent upon Jesus, who he is, what is being accomplished for his sake through your life and through the lives of others. Remind yourself of what is good because he is in the picture. When you see your circumstances, don't just see the terrible things that are happening to you because terrible things might very well be happening to you. You might be suffering grievously, but that is not all that is going on. Christ is in the picture too. Remember that. Hold on to that and seek joy because of that reality. Battle against our typical tendency towards having a self-centered perspective that only looks at our circumstances from our own point of view. Most likely, your suffering is an opportunity to glorify Christ. So remind yourself that that such an opportunity is actually a reason for thanksgiving, even if it doesn't feel good. And you guys, I know that's hard. 
I know this fight for joy is not easy. I've experienced many seasons of deep discouragement. I've, seen, I've experienced seasons of what would probably be clinically diagnosable as depression. And so I know how hard it is to fight for joy. I know that. So don't hear me saying this from an ivory tower of always being good. I don't say that. But we, we, we can't succumb to just how we feel when we're joyless. We've gotta fight the fight of faith to seek joy. Remember that your life is Christ's. It serves a purpose greater than yourself. So if your hardship can bring glory to him, it is worth rejoicing in. That will change the way even that you respond to others when you're hurting or even when they've offended you. Take this for instance. I'm sure some of you can relate to this scenario. Let's say your spouse still hasn't done what you asked him or her to do for the hundredth time. Um, You've asked this person to vacuum and it hasn't happened. You asked them multiple times this morning, you went to the store, you ran a bunch of errands for them, but when you got back, this person is still just sitting on the couch watching TV and the vacuum is not done. What do you do? How can you choose joy instead of anger in that moment? With a Christ-centered perspective, the question shifts. It no longer is, how can I show this person that I'm disappointed and angry? The question is no longer, how can I get back at them because they've hurt and offended me? The question does become, how can I glorify Christ in this moment? The situation is no longer about what has been done to you, but rather what you can do for Christ in the midst of your difficult circumstance. If you think about, um, if you think about it that way, you're a lot less likely to speak harshly or act coldly towards your spouse. Instead, you will forbear the offense that has been done to you and you'll want to demonstrate love and grace to this person. You, remi- you might remind this person gently, once again, that vacuuming would be helpful you don't say it in a spiteful or harmful way. And in all of that, despite the pain that has been done to you, you can rejoice in doing so and approaching it this way because in so doing, you have honored Jesus in your response to the situation. That's what it means to fight for joy. And as you fight for joy and fight for reasons to rejoice in Christ, you will find them. It will take time. It might not happen immediately, but you will find joy if you seek joy in Christ. Because in any and every situation, we do have opportunity to glorify him. So friends, in conclusion, we often try to overcomplicate the Christian life. It really is fairly simple though. If we wanna seek joy, We just have to remember these things. If we are a church that is proclaiming the gospel to ourselves and others, if we are seeking to do that all of the time, our joy will increase. We will be rejoicing. 
And if we as a church fight hard to rejoice in the midst of hard circumstances, if we seek to remember Jesus in our difficulties, our joy will increase. If we wanna be a joyful church, let's share Christ with each other and with those who don't know him. And let's remind our own hearts of who we are in him and what we have in him. Humility to Christ and his mission really does enable us to rejoice at all times. So let's trust God's word and walk in that truth. In it, we will find joy and boldness and hope. So let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for Paul's example for the example of so many martyrs that have gone before us and people who have faced persecution for the sake of your name. They are examples worthy of imitation. They are examples that remind us that we are servants of a glorious and good God who has given himself entirely for our sake so that we can give ourselves entirely for him and have no fear of want or need. We can pour ourselves out as a spiritual offering, as Paul said. We can face hardship, we can face hurt and persecution, and still rejoice, because we are Christ's and he is ours. Help us to proclaim the gospel even through suffering, and to rejoice knowing that Christ can be magnified and exalted through our lives and through our proclamation. Let us be a church that does that. In Jesus' name, amen.